0: We've been doing these podcasts since March, and now we're finally talking Turkey about vaccines. It's on Mm -hmm. the horizon. They're coming. The most talented scientists in the entire world are working on this, and it's being financed aggressively by the Western democracies in the U.S., in terms of research and development. That combination of factors is why I've always believed we're going to have more than one safe and effective licensed vaccine right. in the U.S.
1: We've been in the surge for weeks now, and a number of us have been saying that already. It's just becoming more apparent to everyone because the numbers are starting to top in the 1,000 every day in new cases, and that's why people are so focused on it. The doubling rate right now is not the same as it was in June. Back in June, we saw a doubling in a single week. We're not seeing doubling in a single week yet, but we may not be far from that.
0: There
2: is no other option other than everybody wears a mask. We're not gonna test and trace. The vaccine is still months away. There's no way out of this other than everybody gets the message that viral load makes a difference. You're likely to save someone that you love by wearing a mask and decreasing the amount of viruses that they're exposed to.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and our advice to you from Podcast HQ for this episode is buckle up. We've had an influx of COVID-19 developments and news, much of which broke just before, during, and after our November 9 recording session. Our panel will cover the before and during, including the latest numbers, Pfizer's big vaccine effectiveness announcement, and much more. We ask that you stick around for a minute or two after the panel ends to get an update on Arizona schools and in-person learning. Suffice it to say that things are moving quickly right now. Luckily, we've got three experts around the table to help you navigate and make sense of all of it, backed by more data than ever before, to help clarify what it is that we do and don't know. And the data is clear on this. Our collective well-being during this pandemic is shaped by three factors that determine exposure to potential viral load. People, space, and time. More people equals more risk. Less space equals more risk. And longer time equals more risk. There's a big difference between a well-spaced walk in the park and a small indoor bar that's filled with people. Do your best, Arizona. Wash up, mask up, maintain physical distancing, and help manage the risks of people, space, and time. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk vaccines, task forces, trusting scientists, the numbers, and the somewhat tricky COVID-19 tightrope we're walking with case counts on the rise as of November 9, 2020. In the midst of many, many things going on in this country, we still have a pandemic that we need to focus on. We are so grateful to have our panelists back today, starting with Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you? Terrific. So glad to have you. From Arizona State University, Joshua LeBaire. Josh, how are you? I am doing great. He can be found walking the halls of emergency rooms, but right now he can be found on this podcast, (laughs) Dr. Nicholas Vasquez. Nick, how are you?
2: I'm doing great, as long as I get my steps in, you know?
3: Joshua LeBaire. The chief clinical officer of Banner Health and the president of Tucson Medical Center both this morning came out on record saying that they believe we are in a second surge. And to quote Judy Rich from Tucson Medical Center, it's the exponential nature of this that is so hard to predict. How two turns into four and how four turns into 16. These are the numbers that we're really worried about.
1: Well, first of all, we've been in a surge for weeks now. And a number of us have been saying that already.
3: It's just becoming
1: more apparent to everyone because the numbers are starting to top in the 1,000 every day in new cases, and that's why people are so focused on it. The doubling rate right now is not the same as it was in June. Back in June, we saw doubling in a single week. We're not seeing doubling in a single week yet, but we may not be far from that, it's hard to say. Certainly, all the numbers we worry about are rising, the hospital numbers, the ICU bed numbers, new case numbers are all going up. And the only thing that's still lagging a little bit is death, but that will follow.
3: Will Hummel's favorite number, Josh, is seven-day trailing average of cases. What do we have?
1: Also, my favorite number as well, the seven-day trailing average for the state of Arizona is almost 1,700 now. That's not a good number to have.
3: On a week-over-week increase, what does that look like?
1: Well, it went from 1,300 to 1,700. So 30% seems about right.
3: Nick, what's life like in the emergency room right now, two weeks later than the last time we talked?
2: Busier. We're all aware. We're a little nervous, but we've been here before. We're hoping that we can get through this again. We have some humility to know that the last time we made dire predictions, some of them came true, some of them did not. It's really hard to say what's going to happen, but I want everybody to understand why things are different now and why I think we all need to be much more careful. In June and July, the large number of our cases were adult cases. Pediatric beds were available because kids don't get super sick in the summer. A lot of our winter visitors were away. So our overall hospital capacity was much lower. And that's the nadir. Uh, We are approaching our peak and January is usually our busiest month without a pandemic. Some things that might work in our favor is flu might be better. Because a lot of people are wearing a mask. The other problem is, though, it's every day. There's multiple COVID patients, whereas two weeks ago, maybe there were one or two. We've done this dance before. Pretty soon, a couple weeks from now, it'll be a lot of people with COVID come in. And folks that don't even know they have COVID. The surprise, oh, by the way, you also have COVID diagnosis. Once we get there, that's when we're in exponential growth. I haven't seen that just yet, but I feel like we're close.
3: Will... According to Nick, the flu season might be better because people are masking up. Given what we keep hearing in the media about COVID
0: fatigue, are people still masking up? In a lot of places, they are. Here's what happened in South America and Australia is that they're finishing their winter. We're going into winter. They had a lower influenza season. I think we can anticipate that here too. Think about it this way. In a normal year, what percentage of people are wearing a face covering in public? Close to 0%. This year... In certain parts of the state, you're probably close to 80%. Other parts of the state, you're probably close to 20% unless the store makes them. So that's an intervention. The other intervention is spacing, people being cognizant about space between people, smaller gatherings. Things like that. That's an intervention. So where you have interventions in place that are different from a normal year and a concerted effort to get people vaccinated for influenza. And it's never been easier or more convenient to get the influenza vaccine because of changes at the state legislature over the last few years so that pharmacists can give vaccines and stuff like that. We have all these interventions in place that we can count on, I think, a lower uh, influenza season than we would normally have.
3: Dr. Kara Christ, head of the state health services, has gone on record as saying we still have too much growth in case rate in young adults, although we are seeing case increases across the board in all age ranges. Is that an indication
0: of COVID fatigue? Well, it's been like that for months. If you look at the age ranges of where the cases are coming from, you stratify by four different age groups. The lowest spread, at least documented spread, is from kids zero to 15. After that, it's seniors who aren't, in terms of cases per 100,000 and rates, seniors aren't that far away from those little kids. It's not a steep slope either. It's they're tracking together. The little kids and the seniors are tracking together. And then it's the middle-aged people, people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s and stuff. And then always the top line in terms of cases, and usually the slope of the curve, is who? People in their 20s and 30s. Where do they go? They go to clubs. What intervention do we need, have we been talking about for six weeks? Better compliance and enforcement of the mitigation measures in bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. And we're still not there. Yes, there's the hotline, but it's a reactive hotline, and not all the complaints are even being followed up on. And when people cheat the system, they're not getting punished. Still, no simple intervention. There's CARES Act money to pay for it. There is a workforce out there. They're called sanitarians. It's a job I had in the 80s, inspecting restaurants. Is the dumpster lid closed? Is the chicken cold? Is the walk-in cold? Is the steam table hot? Those people could be repurposed for the next four months to check on COVID, and they need an executive order to give them some additional authority so that they can pull food establishment licenses with due process to provide incentives to those facilities to do the right thing, and it's still not happening. Since you got me on the bandwagon, again, I'll say it again, a statewide face-covering mandate, the single highest return on investment intervention that we have, all it costs is political capital, and we don't have the kind of leadership that we need, at least so far, to do that. The governor of Utah, Ruby Red State, the governor put on a face-covering mandate Sunday. That's yesterday. My
1: sense is, and I don't know what you all think, but it feels like there are sort of two groups. There's one group that keeps up with everything and they follow what the medical professionals are telling them and they follow the mitigation factors. And then there's another group that sort of waits until they're forced. to.
0: That's what happened in late June and into July. There's no rule
1: that says they have to do it. Then that's it. Then they're they're okay.
0: That's when they bought their mask. They weren't against masks, but they're like, I don't have one. And then right, the city right, and right. county were put in the requirement and now they got a mask and they're not against it, but now they're, but they're being retrained. And for some people, it's like breaking a horse for others. They jump on board quickly. And then there are the obstinate people who are like, this is against my civil liberties. That's the hardest nut to crack that group.
1: Just a group of folks there that this abstract concept of doing something for the community is just a hard one for them to get. And I think We see that certainly in younger people, students, for example, they, to them, there's only a negative. If they get tested positive, then they're going to have to be isolated. Whereas if they don't know, (laughs) then their life goes on positively. The question is, can we, as a society, as a community, come up with some kind of a positive reinforcement, some kind of thing to give to people for good behavior? And I don't know what that is. If we could come up with something Mm-hmm. That, that rewards people for getting tested routinely, for following mitigation factors, for maintaining spacing. If they personally benefited from that, even if they test positive, what would that be? Carrots and sticks. You need a combination. Right now, we, we sort of have a stick when there are rules in place, but not everybody follows those rules or not everyone enforces those rules, I should say. It'd be great if there were some benefit. Membership in a club, in an organization, where you're committed to following these rules. And if the longer you're in that, the better. I don't know. I,
3: I don't know what to say, except I never thought Cracker Jacks tasted good. <clears throat> but I did it for the prize. <laughs> <laughs> right, right,
2: right. <laughs> it's got to have social capital. It's got to mean something for the people that mean something to you. You can't just be like a badge, like you're doing your part, because that will work for the people it works for. But it's got to have some social capital for the people that you care about. It's got to be meaningful to the folks in your circle that you aren't doing it. And I think we're kind of hung up right now on this feeling that if I'm not doing it, some people judge me and kind of stuck in that little spot there. I wish we could get past that because there is no other option other than everybody wears a mask we're not going to test and trace. The vaccine is still months away. Remdesivir may work for the sickest of sick people to prevent those folks from contracting the virus when they get exposed, but it's not going to be a game changer. Same with the antibodies. It's just not enough of the antibodies to actually go around giving everybody antibodies, especially right now. There's no way out of this other than everybody gets the message that viral load makes a difference. You're likely to save someone that you love by wearing a mask and decreasing the amount of viruses that they're exposed to. I hope that message gets blared loud and clear. Just
3: this morning's news had enough COVID-19 developments for us to build an entire episode around. Let's switch to Pfizer's announcement about phase three trial performance of their vaccine. Will, talk us through it.
0: So they didn't release the data, so it's not like they have their phase three data up on the website and and it's not published in a peer-reviewed journal. But Pfizer had a press release that said that they have good evidence, they believe, that their vaccine, which is a messenger RNA vaccine, brand new technology, never been used before, they believe that it's 90% effective at preventing COVID-19 infection. So 90% is great. Why is that great? Because the higher the percentage, the more effective the vaccine is, the fewer people that we have to vaccinate to get to herd immunity. So if it's 90%, That means we might be able to get away with vaccinating, say, four and a half million Arizonans instead of seven. The last Arizonans are going to be the hardest ones. (laughs) Getting from five and a half to seven is going to be really hard. But if we can have a vaccine that's so effective we can stop at four million, that's huge. Pfizer's announcement was preceded the night before by a
3: 60-minute story on Operation Warp Speed. The fact that the U.S. Army is leading the production and distribution portion of getting a vaccine out. It was interesting and notable from the fact that that discussion that happened during that broadcast, I think was designed to be reassuring that this country is ready to do what it needs to do, but it completely fell short of what happens towards the end of that chain. Once the vaccine is packaged with the correct components, for it to be used in a clinic or a hospital setting, but then it stopped. Yeah, The deployment is, the,
1: is everything, right? How do you yeah, how do it, you get it out? And, right. Yeah, yeah.
3: So, Will, we've talked about this once before, but let's talk about it again. There is already a vaccine distribution program that works here in Arizona. Yep. Share again what we know about that and how that would pair up with, the army rolls a
0: bunch of trucks in with a, with a whole bunch of cases of vaccine. What we did with H1N1 Was and it worked. Is that we used the existing vaccines for children, the VFC infrastructure, and the conduits that we have to get out to providers, the ordering, the display, the reporting. We use the VFC system, Vaccines for Children system, as the mechanism to distribute. I don't actually know what the best way to do this is, but if you're going to use the Department of Defense to do it, that's not. Their area of expertise day in and day out, so I'm not sure that's where I'd put my eggs into that basket. To be fair, in the broadcast, they interviewed one state health department director.
3: She said, look, we're already in touch with all of our different components on the ground on how this is going to work, but for us, it seems like a challenge, too, because we got to get to herd immunity. We're worried about, A, uptake, and B, the cold chain. And the booster. Booster's a big deal. The two
0: vaccines that are in phase three are both two shots. Two shots. You got to find everyone 28 days later. Mm -hmm. Way harder than just a one shot deal. Doable, but you got to do your planning. The cold chain, totally right about that. These vaccines have to, at least the mRNA vaccines need to be held at negative 70C, which is negative 94 Fahrenheit. Really, really cold, not a normal freezer. Doable, but challenging. The booster shot, doable. You're going to lose people to follow up. That's a given. Got to get as many people back as you can. So there are some unique characteristics that need to be taken into account. And it seems silly, but both of the phase three vaccines have either
3: five doses or 10 doses per vial, which means once you defrost it, you got to give at least five
0: or 10 treatments before that spoils. It can only be thought out for a certain number of hours. You can do it if you have the right kind of planning.
2: Right. And of course complicated timing makes it so much easier to vaccinate you <laughs> right. know people who are reluctant in the first place.
0: Sarcasm asterisk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: yeah. Please tell me if I'm wrong, This is just in my head. But I mean, it seems like what you're going to have is, on one hand, a rush of people who are like, yes, I want that vaccine and then you're going to have a rush of people who are going to hold back and go, wait to see what happens to those people.
0: Yeah, right. That's
1: okay, because there's
2: not going to be enough at the beginning anyway. With any
1: luck, the phase three trials will have really ironed out the whole safety thing. Here's a
3: bizarre statistic that did come out of that 60-minute story. That said that 60% of physicians would be willing to take it, 40% of the nursing profession.
0: Surprising? A little bit, Yeah. Yeah. Um sort of. Well depends I mean, when what you kind say of position. Phase
2: three trials will iron out this stuff. That's for an audience of you and me. When you have all of the horror movies showing some scientist somewhere going, It's perfectly safe and then yeah. springing the trap, there's just again that level of trust of they're gonna wait to see what happens and then retrospectively determine whether or not this is a safe thing or not. It's just in the waters.
0: I think that's true. But remember, it's not like we're going to have 5 million tube vaccine doses here in Arizona all at once. So you got to roll it out. You have to have priority populations. And as far as healthcare providers and certain people who work in nursing homes, guess what? It's going to have to end up being a condition of employment, which is a different thing from voluntary vaccination of the public for just general purposes. But if you're going to work in a nursing home, yep. you're going to have to get vaccinated. And that's the end of it. You don't let people smoke in a nursing home. You got to protect the people that you're there serving. And so the condition of employment piece might need to be used.
1: Oh yeah. You can't work in a research lab at ASU unless you've been B vaccinated. If you're going to work with certain specimens, you can't do it. That's a requirement.
3: Nick, is there any chance that that 60-40 number that I just gave about 60% physician uptake, 40% nurse uptake is actually also sort of an inverse of don't give it to me. Other people need it. I'm the one who's supposed to be helping people stay well and get well. I would rather they get the vaccine before me.
2: Uh, yeah, actually, I imagine, or at least the way I feel, you got to give it to the elderly, infirmed nursing home patients first, and then the people who work there.
0: I think you give it, it to the people start... who work there first. Yeah, yeah then they and then you it. can start
2: to move it around. But I just really wonder, we've seen limits of the power people will accept government has and pushback and, you know, frustration. And even in the hospitals across the country, there's a mandate that thou shalt get thy TB test and flu vaccination. But there is a a way in which people can say, okay, well, I'm not going to get the flu vaccine. I'm just going to wear a mask for the entire flu season. It's funny how we kind of don't like other people's power over us. I imagine that you're going to see not a small percentage of people object to being told what to do, even if it's the correct thing to do. This is like trying to get people to go to a bar and not drink so they can be the designated driver. It really is all in messaging, and there needs to be a lot of thought in the messaging, in the communication, in the way things go, because I think the people who are most opposed to it are the ones who are most sensitive to feeling judged and are ready to extend a middle finger if they feel like someone's being superior to them. I wonder if we have people working on that messaging.
3: Now, when it comes to healthcare workers, there's actually a precedent for this, which was we have had this in the past with major flu outbreaks where hospitals and healthcare organizations have made it a condition of employment to get vaccinated, to get their flu shot.
0: So this is not new, right? just a different table. Correct. And not just Correct. that, daycare, schools. There's a lot Correct. of places you can use this as condition of employment if you can't get there on your own. As a parent, God,
2: please let the schools reopen without risk. Please allow us to make those schools a priority. It enables so many people to return to the work world. So many have been negatively impacted by having kids now added to daily work. I know I have. We have a at-home distance learning kid that for this podcast, I have to hide from. <laughs> so please get the schools reopened in a way where they can go back.
0: We've been doing these podcasts since March. And now we're finally talking Turkey about vaccines. It's on the horizon. They're coming. I've been optimistic from the very beginning. You can go back to the very first podcast where we talked about vaccines because the most talented scientists in the entire world are working on this. And it's being financed aggressively by the Western democracies in the U.S., in terms of research and development, that combination of factors is why I've always believed we're going to have more than one safe and effective licensed vaccine in the U.S.
3: Okay, we're going to go around the horn real quick. I'm going to ask you this question. I want a quick answer. Now that we're so close, we can practically taste a vaccine. Emergency use authorization or full phase three trial? Which do you pick? I'm going to start with Josh.
1: Full phase three you got to do it right. you got to get the right data. In part because of the very issue that came up earlier today, which is you want people to have full faith in the process. And the only way to guarantee that is to do it right.
3: Nick, it's so close you can taste it. Full phase three or EUA?
2: Take your time. Do it right, because you only get to do it once. And if you don't do it right, you'll never get this chance again.
3: Will, you can barely sit still in your seat
0: right now. (laughs) EUA or full phase three? Play the long game. Do it right. But accelerate the process. I was talking to somebody last week who's really deeply involved in the process. And there are many, many administrative things that they can do to speed up the analysis and review of the vaccine data. So normally, when they're going through an evaluation of the phase three data as part of the process that FDA uses to decide whether something's going to get licensed and approved, they might have a meeting Now And then all these other people, they have other jobs and universities and things like that. And then they're going to have another meeting next month and another meeting next month. And he said, what is going to end up happening because of the importance of this is they're going to accelerate that schedule and they are in the process of clearing their calendars so yeah. that they can accelerate the review and analysis piece, and we can save a lot of time. Yeah. Do the yeah. full review, but not do once a month meetings, but with all the resources needed to do the analysis statistics and stuff. I would say full approval, use the long game, but do everything you possibly can to accelerate that schedule administratively so people yeah. clear their schedules the, the really smart people that know how to dive into this phase three data to look for adverse events and effectiveness and get her done.
3: It is Monday, November 9th, six days after what was purported to be election day, which turned out to be election week, also announced this morning was vice president, now president elect Biden's. Coronavirus Council, which was announced at the same time that the White House and Mike Pence were convening their coronavirus task force. Are we headed into months of confusion or at least weeks of confusion, 72 days worth until we get to January?
0: I don't know about that, but I think it's super interesting to think about the fact that the sitting existing FDA Commissioner Hahn is going to be making these decisions about the vaccines during and in the middle of this transition. It's staff scientists and volunteers on those committees that are really doing the deep dive into that analysis. So I'm not concerned that there's going to be shenanigans involved with the analysis and review of the phase three data. I'm not concerned about that. Too many eyes on the
1: process already.
0: Yeah. Especially knowing
1: that more scientists are going to come on board soon. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be shenanigans.
0: I don't think there is either. I do think that it's kind of interesting to think about Dr. Fauci. Unique position that he's in, don't you think? Here he is, kind of the, he's a great scientist, but he can actually talk to the public and has been that way for decades. I've always respected him for his ability to relate to people and communicate effectively. Probably the single most trusted voice among, not um, for everybody, but for most. And he's working now. He indirectly still reports to the president. So you have this dynamic about I was just trying to put his shoes on after they announced the result of the election. I'm like, okay, if I'm Fauci, what am I going to do? Like if I stay, I have to work within the existing apparatus of the institutions and the people who are the head of the NIH and president, the vice president, the coronavirus task force, which might be influencing how much candor he can speak with. Whereas if he were to even temporarily retire, I mean, he is 79, he could temporarily retire for the next 73 days, work outside the system with the incoming administration. Where can you do the most good in these 73 days if you're Dr. Fauci? I don't have an answer. I don't know. Well, you have to know him. He has seen administrations come and go, Republican,
1: Democrat, everybody. And he, he just pilots a steady ship. He's not going to leave because he's been running NAID longer than any institute director has run at, at any other institute at NIH. He has a steady arm, and I don't think he's going to walk away. He's going to keep doing what he does. And he, he's always told the truth from the beginning.
2: I'm fully out of the prediction business. It's so hard to know what will happen given all of the chaos that's kind of going on. but. Yeah, there'll be not to wade into politics because that's outside of the scope of this podcast. But I think it's fair to say that you will have competing narratives from now until January. And maybe even fair to say that you will have competing narratives from now until whenever this period of time ends. There's different information streams, different accepted facts. You're gonna remain in that realm. Happy to see physicians and the scientists on the Biden Coronavirus Task Force. And it includes an emergency physician, people who are willing to sort of look at the data and talk about what is the best option now, knowing that we may not have a perfect option. I find a lot of reassurance in that approach rather than let the story we want to tell or the optics ruling the day, but just instead having a clear-eyed approach at what our country is facing and what it needs.
3: Indeed, this is not a political podcast, but it is a COVID podcast, one where the narrative matters. And so if you have a president saying for weeks that we are rounding the corner and that a vaccine is imminent, and then you have a president-elect who the day that Pfizer says we have a 90% effective vaccine— responds by saying, congratulations, but keep your mask on. How is the public able to process that and respond?
2: Well, I'll throw out there what I think, and you'll have to allow me to kind of wander far afield and come back in. Some 70 to 71 million people voted for a president, and some 74, 75 million people voted for change. So it's not controversial to say that we have a country that's divided, but it's also a country that's divided in a way that they kind of perceive basic facts. If you ask a certain group of people how is the coronavirus going, you'll get a different answer based upon how they might have voted in the election. I hope that that can come to an end as soon as possible so that we have agreement on basic facts. And I don't know how that's going to happen. But until then, it is not possible to have a uniform communication where everyone accepts the basic facts and we say, look, the coronavirus cases are going up, so we need to do X, Y, or Z, you will always have competing narratives until we can get to a basic set of of facts that we all agree upon, or at least agree upon an approach with which to identify what is a fact or a truth. And this is not a small thing. Everything that you care about, any issue you care to bring up, whether it be COVID, vaccination, or whether it be STD rates, or whether it be controlling your blood pressure, anything you care to come up with. If people don't have trust, then they will turn to alternative sources which reinforce bias. This is regardless of which party you belong to, or if you're apathetic, if you don't care.
3: the number of studies that we've seen that can parse the difference between a majority of the population wearing a mask and another portion of the population not wearing a mask and what that actually translates to in statewide deaths for the state of Arizona, those types of messages have been out there for months.
1: Yeah, in the, in the last number of years, maybe even as much as a decade, there has been a growing number of people who just don't trust science. This is this group of people that they're they're not going to listen necessarily to studies or doctors or any of that. And we're going to have to find a way to get a message to that population. certainly around things like climate change. People are just not happy necessarily trusting science. And there was an interesting op-ed in 2016 after the first time our current president was elected. In the New York Times, and it was an individual writing about his father who just could not swallow, who basically wasn't going to vote for scientists or support scientists. But, you know, this guy was a working class man. He he watched a group of people he felt were not working hard enough, who were taking social benefits away from the hardworking class. And uh, he resented that. And he resented people he viewed as his bosses who he didn't trust. And these were the quote unquote professionals, and they included doctors, they included scientists, they included his bosses. And I think there's a whole component of that in our culture. Those are among the people who we won't necessarily reach with scientific data. We're gonna have to reach them some other way. And maybe that way is to find a way to incentivize good behavior.
3: Will, it's clear that the messenger matters as much as the message. Maybe more. Is there an appropriate
0: messenger that we have not tapped into yet? Is there an elephant in this room? (laughs) I mean, it's the president. He's got a big following. If he could become an evangelist Uh, for science and masks and this kind of thing, a lot of people would go along with it. I do have a new
3: game. It's called Boil It Down. We go person to person from the perspective that you're sitting at today with all the things that are going on in the world, with the change of administration, with great news about vaccine effectiveness, with all the challenges that lay in front of us before this pandemic becomes more manageable. Boil it down to the one thing people need to know right now. I'm gonna start with Josh. Boil it down.
1: I'm gonna come on call some things I observed in the last week or so. So there've been a couple of good studies, one most notably out of New York, the New York Experience that got published in the New England Journal that looked at whether or not people who'd been infected developed long-term immunity that was protective against the virus. And the good news is, There is. And I think that's a bit of encouraging news that I would say supplements what we know about the vaccine now, because it says that people do mount a response to this virus that does prevent them from getting infected again. And so I think that's encouraging. That said, I think we are without a doubt still going to need the vaccine because we have never, as far as I know in human history, ever achieved herd immunity without vaccinations.
3: Nick, you take the reins here. Boil it down.
2: Really easy. Wear a mask. Number one thing that you can control is what you do. And if you wear a mask, it reduces the amount of viral load. Even if you're infected, it reduces the amount of viral load that you expose other people to or that you get exposed to. It's just simple, easy little way in which you can take charge of your health.
0: For all the noise that's out there, Will, find the signal and boil it down. Hang in there. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's late in the third quarter. If we stick together, we're going to get... So the end of the fourth quarter, which is where the vaccine comes. Don't listen to people who say, we don't know, blah, 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 it's going to go on forever because there's plenty of those people out there. Don't listen to them. It's going to be okay. It's been a long haul, I know. But let's stick together until we get to the vaccine and have each other's back. That's it.
3: Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Nick. We've come to count on each of you for your insights, interpretations, and revelations that aren't really found anywhere else. And once again, you've delivered. But contrary to what Will said, that's not it for now. Just after Nick registered his plea for the return of low-risk in-person learning, Dr. Kara Christ from the Arizona Department of Health Services and Arizona State School Superintendent Kathy Hoffman held a news conference regarding education and COVID-19. The message? We all must be disciplined about our everyday lives outside of school in order to make it possible for in-person learning to happen inside of schools. Many school administrators spoke passionately and clearly, but Superintendent Hoffman may have said it best. Quote, the more we ignore this virus, the less stability we provide our students and families. Check the link in the show notes or go straight to azcentral.com for the complete story. Get schooled on COVID-19 best practices so that our kids can get schooled in person for the rest of this academic year. Once you're schooled, don't forget to be COVID smart. In order to make Will's projection come true, we can't forget that a twindemic of flu and rising COVID cases is possible. And avoiding that twindemic that could overburden hospital emergency rooms is up to us. Get your flu shot now to help avoid the combined effect of the flu and COVID on our neighbors, our healthcare professionals, and our hospitals. Make sure you continue to wash up, mask up, physically distance whenever you can, and keep a heads up for each other out there. Double points for masking up, by the way. As Will said, it can help prevent the flu and COVID from spreading. Next, testing can help. It's more broadly available, and it's free. When in doubt, get tested. Lastly, remember that we're in a marathon, not a sprint. By being in this together, we'll get out of this together. Our roundtable returns in two weeks. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Like last week's episode on all the options for healthcare coverage, including Obamacare Open Enrollment that is available only through December 15, or episode 50, which introduced you to Vitalist Health Data Dashboard. There is a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast, check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released, or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this, with great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.